Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Right. This is a nice building. This is a fabulous location. I've right? never so. had a chance to do an event at this particular building before. And now for the, the official beginning for radio, all right? Good evening, and welcome, everybody, to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Stephen Saum. I'm the editor of Santa Clara Magazine, and I'm pleased to be your moderator tonight. Joining us today is Reza Aslan, renowned writer, commentator, religious scholar, and author of both the New York Times bestseller Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and his new book, God, A Human History, just out in paperback. He's a recipient of the prestigious James Joyce Award and is currently a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. God, a human history, tracks the history and development of the three primary monotheistic religions today, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The premise of the book is that these three religions all conceive of God in human-centric terms and explores the moral, political, social, and even psychological implications of this conception. We're grateful to have him here with us tonight to discuss such a nuanced and timeless topic. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Reza Aslan to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. So, so Reza, this is a wide-ranging book intellectually. I mean, let's, let's start out with, with talking about that. You, you've studied religion at Santa Clara, at Harvard Divinity School, at UC Santa Barbara. But as you note in the book in passing, you've had your own journey through different faith traditions. I'm wondering if we could start out with, with talking about that, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I grew up in Iran um, and uh, was sort of culturally Muslim, the way so many people are culturally religious. It was a part of my identity um, more than it was a set of beliefs and practices. My father was uh, uh, a pretty uh, exuberant atheist, I should say. Uh, he, you know, he had he was a Marxist and a communist and, uh, you know, never trusted anything anyone wearing a turban had to say about any topic. Um, he, I like to say that my dad was is the kind of atheist who always had a, a pocket full of Prophet Muhammad jokes that he would pull out at inappropriate times, like that kind of atheist, you know? Um, my mother uh, grew up um, mostly, she was mostly raised by her grandmother, so she, you know, she had a little bit more of a traditional uh, upbringing, but she herself wasn't um, all that religious. When we left Iran in 1979 after the revolution and came to the United States, I think my father saw that as an opportunity to, you know, at, at the very least, stop having to pretend um, and to kind of wipe our uh, household clean of religion. So I didn't really grow up with much um, of a, of a religious education or a religious experience, though I was always extraordinarily fascinated by religion. And I think, as you and I had discussed before, I think part of it had to do with my, my experience of revolutionary Iran, being able to see firsthand the power that religion has to 
transform a, a society for good and for bad, I, I think that experience never left me, and it and it created this lifelong interest in religion and spirituality. Um, though, as I say, I never had an opportunity to um, really do much about it, to pursue it much. Um, as most uh, people who, who know me know, uh, when I was uh, in high school, I, I went to an evangelical youth camp and, and found Jesus. And, um, and that was also a, a profound experience for me. It was a you know, to, to hear that gospel story for the first time was transformative. And I spent the next few years preaching that gospel uh, to everyone, whether they wanted to hear it or not, frankly. Um, and then when I went to college, that's when I first began to learn about the historical Jesus as opposed to um, the, the the Jesus of Christianity, the Jesus that I had heard about at, at church. And, and uh, you know, all, all I can say is that that Jesus became more real to me. And so um, although I uh, abandoned Christianity as a religion, I became even more fervent in my interest and uh, and my pursuit of who the historical Jesus actually was, which ultimately led to to zealot. And then um, and you'll you'll appreciate this because you know what Santa Clara is like, uh, but it but the Jesuit priests there uh, encouraged me, knowing that I was still kind of searching for some kind of spiritual connection. Uh, the Jesuits there encouraged me to look back to the to the religion of my forefathers um, and to study Islam again. Um, and and then I began to study particularly Sufi Islam and realized that this was kind of this was stuff that I already believed that I, I that there was kind of suddenly a language for it. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. Catholic priests converted me to Islam. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. It's, uh, which again, makes perfect sense if you know Santa Clara. If you know Santa Clara. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, ever since then, I think for me, making a, a commitment to study the religions of the world has created, um, a, a, a depth to my faith, which I think is people don't expect. I think for a lot of people, they think, well, if you study the religions of the world, then obviously it becomes very difficult to take any one of them all that seriously. Certainly it becomes very difficult to take any of their truth claims all that Just seriously. Just take them anthropologically. Right, exactly. And, and you, see them, you, you see them for what they are, which is different um, languages for expressing similar sentiments. But I always go back to something that the Buddha said, which was that if you want to strike water, you don't dig six one-foot wells. You dig one six-foot well. And... Uh, I want to strike water. And so I chose uh, the well of Islam. Um, but, of course, what the Buddha was really saying was that your well might be yours and unique, but the water that you're drawing from is the water that everybody is drawing from. And that's kind of been sort of the, 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 the principal um, uh, motivation upon you know, which I, I base my spirituality so you kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe talk a little bit about the uh, the difference between religion and faith. Thank you. Um, that's my favorite thing to talk about, actually, <laughs> because I think, you know, particularly in the United States, we confuse them as one and the same. In fact, just the way that we even talk about religion, you know, in some I believe in Christianity or I believe in the Quran as though these are things to believe in um, rather than things that point the way 
toward um, belief. Faith is not religion. Faith is ineffable. It's individualistic. It's fundamentally an emotion. I think that's the best way to think about faith. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily require a, a, um, a rational underpinning to it. It is, it is about the unique experiences that we have as human beings. It's about the way that we define ourselves and, and our place in, in an indeterminate world. Um, like any emotion, love, joy, it's, uh, it's n- nearly impossible to, to locate and to um, even express with words. Religion is how we express it with words. Religion is little more than a language made up of symbols and metaphors that allow um, a a person of faith to uh, express to themselves and to other like-minded people this ineffable experience. Uh, It's a way to express what is fundamentally inexpressible. The problem arises when people begin to confuse their religion for their faith. And I think that's when you start to get the kinds of irreconcilable absolutisms that have in so many ways defined, you know, the, the the conflicts of, of religions in the modern world. One of the things you, you do get into quite, quite deeply in the book is actually the relationship between language and how we conceive of God, right? How human beings came to, Conceive, conceive of God. Can, can you talk some about that? I mean, kind of in, in ancient Samaria, for example, right? right? How people began to think of God. Yeah. So, um, writing begins in, in ancient Samaria, you know, about 5,000 years ago or so. Um, and before that time, of course, you know, we do, there are distinct languages, uh, that, uh, allow, uh, communities to express their faith, and there are certainly countless myths and stories that are being spread, you know, from culture to culture. But it isn't until we begin to write those stories down that this, what I call this kind of cognitive impulse to humanize the divine becomes um, fixed. It, it becomes solidified. And you can understand why. Because once we begin to write stories about the divine, once the divine becomes a character uh, in, in, a, in a narrative, in a, in a performance, um, we naturally begin to uh, impose upon the divine uh, motivations, right? Human motivations, which come from human emotions and human reactions to certain situations. We start to give the divine a distinct personality. Um, uh, we make the divine a, a kind of protagonist uh, in a story. And in doing so, sort of fix this notion that whatever God is, God acts and thinks and feels the way that we do. God likes the things that we like and doesn't like the things that we don't like. That fundamentally what God is is nothing more than a divine reflection of ourselves. Um, And the act of writing, the invention of writing, uh, not only solidifies that, but more importantly, it accelerates the spread of that idea um, through cultures around the world. 
And I mean, that's very different. And I kind of jumped ahead in, in history, right? And that, that you trace in your book, but it's very different from literally what the first picture is that's recognized. Like this is the first picture of trying to depict the divine. Can, yeah. can you that describe? Yeah. The oldest picture that, that we found. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, 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 yes. You're talking about um, uh, a, a particular image that was discovered in the Volpe caves in the Southern Pyrenees mountains. Um, in in France, of course, we have um, you know uh, artistic expressions um, in, in caves that go back uh, tens of thousands of years. Um, and in fact, what's really fascinating is that we keep finding older and older representations. Um, by the time I when I wrote this book, the oldest representation was about forty three, forty four thousand years ago, and we've already found older ones uh, in the eighteen months since this book was published. Um, we now know for a fact that Homo sapiens were not the only species of human to create um, what we now call cave paintings, cave drawings, um, that Neanderthals also created um, fairly sophisticated cave paintings, cave drawings. And while there is still a, an enormous amount of debate about what exactly these drawings mean, and that debate runs the gambit from they were creating the first uh, temples uh, in these underground caverns to this is nothing more than just Neanderthal graffiti. Um, you know, where, where you, th- there's arguments for both, but I do obviously think that the argument uh, is, a, is a bit uh, more weightier on the notion that there is clearly some kind of spiritual significance um, to these uh, cave paintings, and we can talk about why I believe that later on, I suppose. But what I think is is really fascinating is that when you start to see these kind of anthropomorphic figures arise about 18, 20,000 years ago um, is when you really get to the point where it's quite clear that what you are looking at is supposed to be uh, reflective of some other reality, that, that what is being expressed here is not the world that we live in, not the world that we belong in, but a, a, a world that is just beyond this world. Um, this particular uh, drawing, which is commonly, popularly known as the sorcerer, it's kind of a, a collage of different animals, um, but with a distinct human um, face and expression to it, uh, is... Uh, often understood to be the earliest expression of God that, that we have. Um, and I'm, the, the radio audience didn't notice that I just put God in quotation marks, but I, it was God in quotation marks, by which I mean a, a divine figure. Mm-hmm. Um, what we understand by the word God, you, you can't really say that that's something that existed um, you, you know, eighteen, twenty thousand years ago, that understanding of of God, but nevertheless, this notion of um, a, a divine figure, a divine being who is substantially, substantively, I should say, different than than we human beings. Um, that first expression of it is is quite remarkable. There's an image of it in, in the book that just it, it takes your breath away. So one of the one of the points you make in the, in the book, kind of a connection, and when some with some religions in particular, is you mentioned kind of a belief in in an awareness of the something beyond, right? The ritual of burial, right? The, yeah. un, undertaking that, why? 
Yeah. It's funny because people ask this question more often than any other question, which is, well, how do we know? How do we know that our prehistoric ancestors uh, believed in things like the afterlife or ideas like the soul? Um, There's a lot of material evidence that's available to us, but the most obvious and unmistakable evidence is burials. Um, We have burials of Homo sapiens that go back at least 100,000 years. We have burials of Neanderthals that go back even further than that. We have burials of Cro-Magnum that go back nearly half a million years, um, all of which express uh, clear... uh, um, uh, All of which show clear expressions that whatever they believed about the human condition, they were convinced that this wasn't the end, um, that there was something else to life, that, that life didn't end with the, the destruction of the body, that there was a, a vital essence, if you will, about us. We'll just use the term soul. Uh, just so that we all know what we're talking about, but a, a vital essence that that continued on in another life. This belief, belief in a soul, predates our species. Um, it's a belief that has arisen in every culture the world has ever known, in every part of the world, throughout all of human history. Um, and so, as, as such, it, it's created this evolutionary puzzle. Uh, we have to f- ask ourselves why, if, if this is something that has existed before we existed, if it is something that evolved alongside us, then there must be a reason for it. There must be, to put it in Darwinian terms, some kind of adaptive advantage to this belief. Um, And we've been for the last 200 years trying to figure out what that adaptive advantage could be. And just to cut to the chase, there is none. There is no adaptive advantage to faith. People have come up with various um, answers to this question. Well, you know, perhaps what it does is create a, 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 a sense of social cohesion in the community. Maybe, except that there is nothing inherently cohesive about the religious impulse. Uh, certainly kinship is a far more cohesive right, element. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's how our prehistoric ancestors organized themselves, not according to a common acceptance of symbols and metaphors, but blood. Um, others have said, well, it, you know, it, it uh, alleviates anxiety. People who say that don't know anything about religion because <laughs> it just... <laughs> does not alleviate anxiety. It actually creates anxiety. Uh, others have said, well, it, um, you know, it, it answers un- unanswerable questions. Perhaps, though, there is no reason to think that that's an adaptive advantage, uh, that that allows for the survival of our species. On the contrary, um, there, there really and truly is... Uh, no, we, we, re- we have no idea. That's the answer. We just don't know. We don't know why this universal impulse exists. The best answer that we've come up with uh, is the answer that most cognitive theorists give, which is that it's an accident, that it's just some accidental byproduct of some other 
evolutionary adaptive advantage that that grew some other cognitive process that arose deep in in, in our evolution um, and as an echo of that necessary thing, this universal belief in the soul arose maybe. Uh, there's no way – it's a pretty good answer. It's uh, unprovable. Um, maybe it's because we have souls. That seems like a pretty good answer too and also equally unprovable. One of the big stories in the news today um, has been about Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about place and kind of and the and the role that it plays in kind of bringing bringing faith together Um, and one of the members of the audience here wants to know you know what governments can or should be doing more to protect religious treasures yeah i mean this is such a heartbreaking story um in fact we were just at notre dame this this summer with our children and and i was as I was watching the the images uh, of the the spire, you know, coming down and and the the devastation of the fire, um, I was flipping through photographs of my son standing in front of Notre Dame, and I, it really it, it's really hard to to imagine, you know, what what Paris would be like without that icon, and uh, if you've been following the news what you know is that it turns out that the damage isn't as bad as we thought it was that that the interior of of the church is not nearly as damaged and and the 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 priceless artifacts that are in there seem at least for now uh to be safe so thank god for that what i do find fascinating about the conversation however around this fire is the way in which um, the French, and then in more general terms, Europeans have been talking about Notre Dame and, and obviously lamenting it as a, as a symbol of France, but also lamenting its religious and spiritual significance. Um, a lot of the conversation is about, um, you know, what it's going to be like uh, this Easter, you know, not being able to, to have Easter services there and, and moving forward. I have been to Notre Dame during Sunday services. There are like 30 people there. Um, so what does that say? Mm. You know, France, not the most religious country, uh, in, in the world. What does that say? This kind of, uh, national mourning for, uh, a, a building that not only has obvious cultural and nationalistic significance, obviously, but talking about it in these deeply religious and spiritual terms, um, in a country that is anything but deeply religious and spiritual. And it brings up, I think, probably the most fundamental aspect about religion, something that we've already mm-hmm. talked about a little bit uh, so far, which is that religion is first and foremost a matter of identity. That religion isn't about beliefs and practices. Of course, beliefs and practices are important. But that when someone says, I am Muslim, I am Christian, I am Jewish, I am Hindu, they're not making a faith statement. More often than not, they're making an identity statement. And as an identity statement, it is, of course, wrapped up in all the other factors, the multiplicity of factors that make up your identity, your nationality, your ethnicity, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your political views, your socioeconomic status. All of those things are wrapped up in the words, I am Christian. And I think that in moments like this, when um, 
what is such an obvious symbol uh, for a particular kind of Christian identity uh, becomes threatened, you suddenly see that I, that 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 uh, particular thread of the French identity begin to assert itself. Right, it begins to rise to the surface. This is not unusual. It happens all the time here in the United States. A perfect example of this is what happened after the attacks of nine eleven. You remember when some people did a, a thing? Remember that? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> after the attacks of nine eleven, for a great many. Uh, people who were from the Middle East, who had a Muslim background, like myself, for instance, uh, suddenly that aspect of our identity, which was tied up with so many other aspects of our, of our identity, mm. rose to the surface. It became empowered. It became very important to identify yourself as Muslim, uh, even though you may have identified yourself as Persian before or Arab or Turkish before or South Asian before. Suddenly, that, that part of your identity became much more important. Um, and I think that, that that give and take is very important as we, as we talk about sort of what is happening with religion in the United States, what's happening with religious trends in the world. I think it's very common to just simply say that religion is going away, that religion is dying, but, uh, or that you know, eventually science will do away with religion. But none of that truly understands what religion is, that it is first and foremost a matter of identity. Well, and it, and if if that's true, it seems like it's become bound up in what is an increasingly identity politics. I mean, is that? It's hard that to avoid. Right? It's very difficult to avoid, and of course, because religion um, is the language that still has the the most currency with the masses. Um, it is it is uh, a, a, an aspect of identity that is very easily manipulated by political and religious leaders. Um, I think, you know, things like race, ethnicity, and, and gender, and sexual orientation, those are all very important factors of our identity. But religion tends to subsume a lot of those, um, especially when it is poked and prodded, when, when it is made to feel threatened in some way, um, suddenly it rises to the surface and often with uh, catastrophic results. And and I should probably explain for those who don't know when when you said some some people did a thing right a reference to uh, Representative Ilhan Omar and sort of that's the in the news cycle the last last couple of days um, criticism criticism over that um, I'm wondering because you mentioned your, um, your your children a couple of times you know for those of us when we have kids it's, that can sometimes be an important time to figure something out with <laughs> yeah. religion like what are we going to do what are we going to teach our kids um, I'm curious how how you've approached that if you wouldn't mind talking about that well we we have a multi faith family <laughs> uh, my wife uh, Jessica Jackley that some of you know is a creator co creator of of Kiva dot org uh, here in San Francisco. Um, she is a, a, a Christian. She comes from a very devout evangelical Christian family. Um, I'm obviously Muslim. Uh, we have a wonderful interfaith uh, marriage, one that is predicated on a lot of the things that we were talking about just a moment ago. The, the idea that 
we share the same values. We share the same viewpoint of the world. Um, we share the same faith, but we express that faith in two different languages. Now, I happen to be fluent in her language, um, and it took her a while to become fluent in mine. And, uh, and it works wonderfully. Uh, and then we had kids. And so then the question was, well, what do we want to do with our children? And to just torture the metaphor a little more, we decided that we want our kids to be multilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, we want them to be uh, adept at um, the religious landscape of the world. We want them to have uh, – to be literate in in um religion uh, and we do we work very hard on that we um read them a lot of books we um sometimes do the, this thing that we just kind of jokingly call home church where we uh, on sundays we get together and we have a, a particular lesson drawn from some religion uh we visit a lot of different houses of worship this summer we did something a little bit insane we did an 80 day uh round the world journey where uh i know it's don't don't <laughs> three three kids um uh, we went around the world in, in 80 days, uh, immersing ourselves in uh, different traditions, different cultures. Um, and then, you know, our hope is that they will lead meaningful spiritual lives because I think that that's important. I truly believe that the, that the human condition is such that um, a, a, a um, sort of uh, sort of striving for transcendence. I think that's the best way that I can put it, that, that the striving for transcendence, the, that the desire to experience uh, a reality that is just beyond, you know, this material world, that that, that is the, the, the full expression of the human condition. I want that for my kids. I want them to have that. But how they have it is irrelevant to me. What language they use to express it is irrelevant to me. Um, I have one of my sons, uh, two years ago, after a particularly uh, raucous uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, decided that he's going to be Jewish from now on. And, uh, and he's been Jewish for two years. It's been, it's, he's, we thought it was just a, a passing fad, but he's very serious about it. Uh, we were in Israel this summer, and he was walking around going, my people. <laughs> These are my people. I was like, let's just keep that quiet. Like, don't. Um, uh, I have another son who uh, has become extremely interested in Hinduism. Hmm. Uh, for him, that that came as a result of a. Uh, we 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 have a, a children's version of the Ramayana that that we read sometimes, uh, and it's just sparked his imagination, which makes sense. It's about a blue god with a magic bow and arrow who kills demons. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's more than that, but that's what he gets out of it. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I think, again, for us, it's about giving them the tools to be able to express their, their spirituality in whatever terms they, they want, um, but, you know, not dictating that to them. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So here's something the audience wants to know. How, how do you deal with the 
frequent uh, assumption that people might have. You know, you're a smart thinking person, so you must be an atheist like me. <laughs> I don't know a lot of smart atheists, actually. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, you know, I think I think what that comes from is this notion that um, religion or let me put it more specifically as faith is the product of an irrational mind. Um, that if you believe that something exists beyond the material realm, then you're an idiot. Um, that if you want to actually experience that thing, then you're a fool. Um, and I think that that perception which is so often the kind of rhetoric of the so-called new atheists um, is itself uh, a, a kind of zealotry, is itself a kind of fundamentalism, right? The, 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 the defining uh, characteristic of fundamentalism is sole access to truth and a refusal to accept the possibility that you are wrong. Um, that's fundamentalism. And I think the way that I described faith earlier as a, a kind of emotion is to me a much more rational way of thinking about what is, as we've already discussed, fundamentally a part of the human condition. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've kind of given up on these conversations about does God exist or not. I'm really not interested in that, that debate, to be honest with you. What I'm far more interested in is what do you even mean when you say the word God? What does that word mean to you? It's so weird to me that this word, mm-hmm. which of any other word in the English language is probably the most variable word, is also the word that we all assume we all mean the same thing by when we use it. Um, I have a number of conversations with atheists who um, – you know, say, how can you believe in this sort of, you know, old man in the sky who lives in a cloud and, and judges your actions and hears your prayer? I was like, I don't believe in that. That's like, that's not my God. So um, I, I will say one thing that I do find very interesting, and there's been very interesting studies about this, that um, when you ask an atheist uh, to describe God, that atheist does what the profound believer does, which is, as I said before, they begin to describe themselves. Hmm. And so, again, to me, it's not, a, it's not a function of belief. It's a function of our cognitive processes. We're just kind of hardwired to think this way, to, to divinize ourselves, uh, whether we actually believe in the existence of a divine or not. So another person here in the audience wants to know what what misconception about the origins of religion frustrates you the most? Well, look, to put it in the, in the simplest way, I think the misconception is that um, or, or people who I should put it this way, people who try to explain the origins of religions, why people believe, you know, in, in such things as supernatural beings, etc., tend to do so by thinking of religion in, in functionalist terms. Mm. In other words, what they do is they say, well, what does religion do? And then they say, well, then that's why religion exists. I'll give you a perfect example of this. So 
people will say, well, what, what does religion do? Well, religion provides moral guidance. Maybe, first of all, but okay. Religion provides moral guidance. So therefore, a la Freud, religion uh, arose uh, because of the need for some kind of divine lawgiver, some kind of absolute morality that would keep us from killing each other uh, and, and stealing each other's food. Okay, the concept of a divine lawgiver is barely 5,000 years old. The notion that religion has anything to do with morality is between four and 5,000 years old. The gods of Egypt, the gods of Greece, the gods of Mesopotamia were immoral beings. They were amoral beings. Morality had nothing to do with it. The very idea that your actions on earth have a cosmic consequence, that your morality, your moral choices on earth uh, will lead to some kind of heavenly reward or some kind of divine punishment, that belief is 3,000 years old. What we call faith is hundreds of thousands of years old. So again, to talk about the function of religion as though that explains the origin of religion is to me a silly exercise. This is picking up that thread a little bit, but one of the interesting things you touch on in the book is the the first couple attempts at monotheism. They didn't go too well. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, I was talking about sort of the hundreds of thousands yeah. of years in which there can be such a thing as the religious impulse of those hundreds of thousands of years, the idea of one God is, as I was just mentioning a little bit earlier, barely 3,000 years old. And even then, it didn't work. It, 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 the, the ancient mind was incapable of conceiving of the notion that there could be one God who was responsible for both good and evil, darkness and light, the earth and the sky, the sun and the moon. Why? Why? It, did, it didn't make any sense. It makes much more sense to have a different God for each one of these needs, these, each one of these uh, phenomena. Um, and for, you know, as you were saying, for, for many, many thousands of years, every time the idea of one God arose, uh, it was rejected, often violently so, um, until... It became the foundation of one particular sect of uh, Israelites um, uh, who sort of came upon the notion of what we would now call monotheism, which, by the way, is is a little bit different than um, what is often referred to as monolatry, right? Monolatry, which is a very common religious belief throughout the history of religions, is the belief that there is one high God who is higher than all the other gods, your God. But there are other gods. Obviously, there are other gods. It's just we don't worship those other gods. When you read the Hebrew scriptures, what you see is not monotheism. You see monolatry, right? There is no God before me. That's not there is no God. It means I'm the highest God. You shall worship no other gods but me. Doesn't mean there are no other gods. Of course there are other gods. It just means you won't worship them. You will worship me. 
that's the foundation of, of the Hebrew scriptures. It's really not until um, this kind of historical event called the Babylonian exile uh, in which um, the Israelites were destroyed by the Babylonians and scattered um, throughout Mesopotamia, uh, it's 586 BC, in which the, that idea that, no, our God isn't the high God, Our God is the only God. There are no other gods, but our gods first took root. Um, And as historians, I think, point out correctly, it it took root because of of an existential crisis. It it, it took root because to deny the existence of um, that sole God would be to simply deny the existence of um, Israel and the Israelite uh, community altogether, and whatever doctrinal gymnastics were required to just believe in a single God who is responsible for all good and all evil was worth it if the alternative was no longer existing as a tribe it's you know it 's interesting hearing you describe that it It, it brings to mind um, when our son was very young and was reading, we were reading some Bible stories to him again and again, bad things kept happening to the priest of Baal in the Bible stories. Right. Uh, right. And, and he would keep asking, so what did the priest of Baal do? Why, why do they keep, you know, the heavy stuff keeps coming down on them. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's really funny because I think um, most, those of us who do read the Hebrew scriptures do so in English and in English, the different gods that the Israelites worshipped, because they worshipped different gods, um, are all translated into English as either God or Lord God. But if you read them in Hebrew, you would see that these are two different names for two different gods. The God of Moses is called Yahweh. Um, the God of Abraham is called El or Elohim. The God of Abraham is a Canaanite deity, one of the most important deities in the history of religions, the, the high God of Canaan, which makes sense since Abraham lived most of his life in the land of Canaan. So clearly he worshipped the Canaanite God. Yahweh, as the best that we can tell, is um, a Midianite deity. Uh, the Midianites were a a, a, a Semitic tribe uh, in the Sinai, uh, part of, you know, under sort of the, the umbrella of Egypt, which again makes sense because Moses, who was very likely an Egyptian, meets this deity in the Sinai. And when m- many, 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 many years later, uh, the, 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 the writers of these uh, scriptures begin to kind of write this material down, they have to figure out a way to reconcile uh, these two different gods. And so the first thing, as most of you know, this incredible story where Moses comes across uh, God in the form of a burning bush, and uh, that God uh, reveals himself to be Yahweh. Then he immediately says, I am Yahweh. I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. Uh, uh, you know, the... And that statement is fundamentally false (laughs) because 
Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and these guys, they, they, had, they didn't know who Yahweh was. They had never heard of a deity named Yahweh. The, 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 the deity named Yahweh didn't exist uh, in their world. Um, I think, you know, these kinds of things are, are indicative of how problematic it was for our minds to wrap around the idea that there, there can be only one God, that there is only one God. There's just, there's too many complications in that notion. So with that notion of one God, someone here in the, in the audience wonders, do you think that notion of one God, one supreme God is fundamentally conflicting with, uh, with science or outside the scope of, of science? <laughs> I, well, I, I don't think it's conflicting with science. I mean, I suppose I could just punt and say it's outside the scope of science. Um, but I do think that this, this conversation that we have so often about, you know, the conflict between religion and science is, is to me, I think, just simply wrongheaded. I, I think that fundamentally religion and, and science are two different modes of knowing. There are two different ways of experiencing and explaining the human condition. And they ask two fundamentally different questions. Right. I mean, science is interested chiefly in how and religion is interested primarily in why. And I don't understand why these two things need necessarily to be in conflict with each other. Yes, it is certainly true that the, 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 the principle of science is to disprove hypotheses. And that's certainly not the case with religion, that religion is so quite often about absolutes and and the idea of disproving absolutes does not really occur to religious people. Um, but that's an issue of methodology more than anything else. Uh, in fact, you know, for those who often say that eventually, you know, will dis- science will uh, do away with religion, that science, you know, will discover some scientific uh, truth that will make everyone suddenly stop believing in religion – People who say that know nothing about religion or science, for that matter. I mean, first of all, that's not science's role. Secondly, secondly religion has always been in a, in a constant state of evolution. It is constantly absorbing new information, new realities. When we discovered that uh, the earth is not the center of the universe, as the Hebrew scriptures claim, Christianity didn't go away. It just simply absorbed that information and moved on. If tomorrow aliens land uh, in Union Square uh, and, you know, come, come out and take me to your leader, we'll say, no, you don't want to see our leader. Um, but, but no, you, you definitely want to avoid our leader. Um, that's not going to make religion go away. Religion will just simply absorb that new information, adapt and move on. There is no scientific data that's going to take away people's uh, fundamental belief in transcendence, that their, their, their desire to uh, commune with uh, the divine. That's not going to go away. That's part of the human condition. Well, I have the feeling that right, we were talking about different stories in the news, right? We, you know, for the first time we saw a picture of a black hole in recent days, right? I, I think many people probably reacted to that with wonder and awe and, and, and kind of a sense of this fantastic universe uh, that we're a part of. Yeah. And in fact, I would say that the flip side to that is that 
the more theoretical science becomes, the more that we begun, we begin to sort of unwrap the, the mysteries of the universe and begin to really bear down on the essence of reality, at least I've noticed, the more scientists begin to talk like religious mystics. You know, the, the, the words that they use sound very familiar to me because I've, I've heard, you know, Christian and Muslim mystics use these terms uh, before. Uh, I, far from science and religion continuing to diverge, I think what we are going to see, um, the more we learn about the nature of reality, is science and religion actually converging? I, I, you know, it, it's it's not science fiction to say that there may come a day in which those two things are the same thing: science and religion. I did not expect an applause line there, but I <laughs> there appreciate you go. It. it. We always get an interesting crowd <laughs> at the Commonwealth Club. And and one of the audience members here wants to know, actually, like you to expand some more on why why burial is an indication of a belief in the afterlife or a soul rather than a ritual of biological return to the land. Very good. Very good. Yes. Um, Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, Part of it has to do with that adaptive advantage issue that we were talking about. Fundamentally, again, as we were saying, the religious impulse is not an adaptive advantage. If anything, it's a disadvantage, particularly in terms of the time and resources necessary to continue these rituals, time and resources that should be spent on survival. Burial is a perfect example of that. There is literally no reason to bury a body. It takes an enormous amount of resources and time. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it makes much more sense, frankly, to just simply deposit a, a body, uh, you know, on a hill somewhere and, and let the, the beasts of the wild have its way with it. But not only do we bury these bodies, not only do we take an enormous amount of time and energy to bury these bodies, but we bury them in unmistakably uh, ceremonial ways. For instance, we bury them with the the trinkets and tools that were dear to them uh, in life. We bury them with uh, tools and materials that they may need in the afterlife. We bury them with their weapons, with with um, you know uh, their um, their uh, necklaces, their their you know shells, things like that. Things that that the idea be would be that they 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 may need these things you know in in the afterlife. Um, we return to the graves over and over and over again. Um, we conduct. Um, rituals at these grave sites. This is kind of the first expression of what is often referred to as manism or, or um, sort of der- derogatorily speaking, um, ancestor worship. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that the dead become one with the spirit world and that in uh, appealing to the spirit of the dead, uh, that dead will intercede between you and and the divine. It'll make it rain. It'll it'll help your crops. It'll help your your child who is sick, etc. Um, that kind of ceremonial uh, burial, as I said before, is uh, absolute, unquestionably evident uh, when it comes to Homo sapiens. It is pretty clearly. Uh, evident when it comes to Neanderthal, and it is debatable when it comes to uh, earlier species of humans. I mean, obviously, the further back we get, the harder it is to be certain that what you are seeing is the result of deliberate action or just 
um, you know, the, the movement of uh, this, you know, uh, the bones and, and the sort of everything else that, that, that's going on through, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of, of time. But, but yes, burial ha- has become sort of the, the, the most obvious way that we have to um, label something uh, ritual or ceremony. So there's, there's a moment in the book, um, in the chapter, God is One, where you say warfare in the ancient Near East was considered less a battle of armies than a contest between gods. Um, and that sounds a, a bit like the premise of a book that you have wrote a bit earlier called How to Win a Cosmic War. Yeah. Um, so how are we doing with that as kind of a contest <laughs> between gods? Not good. Not good at all. No. It's, it, so this is true. So in the ancient world, um, as this is kind of what I was referring to earlier when I was talking about monolatry, right? In the ancient world, a tribe and its deity were one and the same. They were, they were a single entity. And that had some uh, consequences. One of those consequences is that uh, warfare between tribes was a battle not between the tribes themselves, but between their deities. And if one tribe defeated another tribe, that meant that that tribe's deity defeated killed the other deity and so that deity ceased to exist and now you worship our deity fast forward to 586 bc and the babylonian exile and now you understand what i was talking about because when the babylonians whose uh, high god was marduk uh, defeated the israelites who at this point their high, do- high god was a an amalgamation of Yahweh and El that scholars sometimes refer to as Yahweh El, which is a very awkward way of putting it, but that gives you an idea. Um, that meant that Yahweh El was dead, that Yahweh El did not exist anymore, and that Marduk was now the god of Israel. And the historical evidence shows a great many Hebrews went along with that. Um, they began to worship Marduk. They learned Babylonian. They uh, began to uh, adopt Babylonian names and Babylonian customs. But there was this core group um, in uh, the heart of uh, the, the Babylonian Empire that refused to accept that reality because to accept that reality meant that they as a people no longer existed. And so they came up with a hitherto uh, uh, radical and, and never before conceived of idea. I know this sounds strange because it's so, it seems so obvious to us now, but no one had ever thought this way before. Um, successfully, no one had ever successfully thought this way before. And you can see this in, um, in the book of Isaiah or what is often referred to as second Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is actually three, three books uh, combined into one um, where suddenly this new idea arises, which is, wait, maybe Marduk didn't defeat Yahweh. Maybe this isn't all, you know, just sort of the end of everything. Maybe there is no Marduk. Maybe there is only Yahweh. And what's happened to us is because we displeased Yahweh and that this is Yahweh's way of punishing us for believing that there is a Marduk in the first place. Um, No one had thought that before. No one had said that before. Certainly no one had written that before. And uh, as I say, it had profound uh, implications for what would then become known as Judaism 
and then ultimately Christianity and Islam, which arose out of Judaism. So this year we're also marking the 40th anniversary of the revolution in Iran um, and this, this fall, right, the, the taking of American hostages. I'm wondering if, you know, if this year has a particular resonance for you or kind of things that it's helpful for, for people or important to, to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, look, I remember exactly 40 years ago. I remember um, the experience of, of the hostage crisis, both in Iran and then back here in, in the United States. Uh, it wasn't the easiest time in the world to be Iranian or, or Muslim uh, in America, as opposed to now when it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember going to school and seeing, um, you know, my teachers wear those little yellow ribbons in solidarity with the hostages and my fellow students wearing shirts that say, said, bomb Iran. And I remember that my, the bank wouldn't cash my father's checks uh, because um, he had an Iranian uh, passport uh, identification. And uh, I remember, you know, anti-Iran uh, demonstrations on my uh, street. If you know anything about me, you know that I spent like a good part of the 1980s pretending to be Mexican. Uh, <laughs> Because I thought that that would help. <laughs> yeah. Did not. Um, and now here we are 40 years uh, removed, and we have an administration that has made going with war with Iran a priority. Um, we have a national security advisor who has written numerous op-eds uh, um, saying that we should bomb Iran, not to stop it from developing nuclear weapons, just just bomb it. Um, we have an administration that has now declared the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard, to be a, a terror organization, which is literally the first step to war with Iran. Um, and I think we have an administration that knows um, that the only way uh, to survive uh, re-election uh, is to be in a war. And so I think, you know, watching this 40th anniversary um, unfold itself in the midst of what I think is probably the the most tense this relationship between the U.S. and Iran has been in a very, very long time is disconcerting, to say the least. So this may or not, may not be related to that. An audience member wants to know, what do the personalities of each god reveal about the cultures that, that created them? It's a really good question. Um, well, so what we, what we do is we um, differentiate our own attributes, our own personalities, the good and the bad. And then we divinize each one of those attributes and create a god for each one of those attributes. Part of the reason why monotheism was such a hard sell is this idea that all of our attributes could exist in a single god, that that was a very difficult thing for the ancient mind to wrap uh, its, its head around, right? That this idea that, that one god would have all of our positive and all of our negative qualities makes less sense that there would be a, a god for each one of those qualities. What is really fascinating to me, however, when I began to dive really deeply into this phenomenon was the way in which our conception of the divine and more specifically our conception of the afterlife the, or, 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 or of the heavens, you know, the, the other world. I, I, I try not to use this word heaven because that word is loaded and it's a word that, again, 
only sort of the the idea of heaven has only existed for about three thousand years when a Iranian prophet named Zarathustra was the first to come up with this idea. Let me just stop there for a moment because I think it's very important. The idea that there is a good place in the afterlife where good people go and a bad place in the afterlife where bad people go was came, was the brainchild of a single individual named Zarathustra who around 1100 BC was the first to come up with it. What we now call heaven and hell is 3000 years old, barely 3000 years old. And in that before that, of course, before that notion, the afterlife was just a continuation of this life. Your morality had absolutely nothing to do with your experience of the afterlife. If you were a warrior in this life, you're a warrior in the next life. If you're a slave in this life, you're a slave in the next life. It just keeps going, but for eternity. And so as a result of that, every time our sort of the political situation on earth changes, the afterlife, the heavens change in order to match it. The word for this is political morphism, which is a word that's ridiculous and you don't need to know, but it's just a word that I like to throw around. Um, and you see this a lot with, um, you know, the, the way in which human civilizations start off in these very sort of small enclaves, tribal, right? There are many, many gods. This is my God. That's your God. That's fine. I worship this one. I worship that one. When you, when you see early Sumerian writings describing the heavenly realm, it looks exactly the same way. There are many, many gods. No one's in charge of anybody else. It's kind of like a, a, a sort of a, a democracy of gods. They all get together and they convene these meetings where they eat and drink and talk about what's going on in their lives. And then they get down to business uh, and they talk about how, what they should do about these pesky humans. And no, no god's word supersedes any other god's words. But then when those little tribes become city-states and then those city-states start to form together to become these empires, all of a sudden the concept of the heavenly realm changes as well. So you see later Sumerian writings where now suddenly there's a king of gods. Marduk again, right? Marduk is in charge of all the other gods. And sure, the other gods can talk and give their advice, but Marduk is in charge. If you're Babylonian, if you're Assyrian, it's Ashur. Ashur is the high god. Uh, he's the king of the, of the gods, uh, etc., depending on who you are. You know, it, so that's what we do. We, we transform the heavens into a kind of cosmic version of the world that we live in. And as that world changes, as the politics of our world changes, as the very bureaucracy of our world changes how we conceive of heaven changes to match. So we're, we're about at that time. Where we have ro- uh, time for just one, one more question. And I'm wondering, this year marks the, the 50th anniversary of a work that you've described as divinely inspired, right? You've said, I believe that the Quran is divinely inspired, but I also believe Abbey Road is divinely inspired. <laughs> it's true. So any tracks in particular? And, and more seriously, when you say that... What do you mean about creati- creation and, and creativity and divine inspiration? Let me talk generally, and then I want to I want to talk about Abbey Road. Uh, <laughs> insofar as Abbey Road, for me, yeah, the the, the uh, Golden Slumbers medley, right? The last, basically side B, B, the B side of Abbey Road, which was 
the Beatles' great farewell to their to their fans. Uh, to me, that listening to that is is akin to a religious experience. But more generally, I think we think that. Those of, those of us who do believe in a God and who do believe in the possibility of being able to commune with that God think that God, you know, speaks once and to one particular person. That's a pretty, I think, limiting view of what the divine actually is. I mean, my concept of God is a, of a being that is in constant communication uh, with creation, that is a fundamental part of creation, that in, indeed cannot be separated from creation. Um, and so, you know, when people ask me my view of scripture and whether I believe that it's divinely inspired or not, yeah, my answer is, yes, I, of course I believe it's divinely inspired, but I don't think it's exclusively divinely inspired. I don't think it's uniquely divinely inspired. I think it's, you know, the the result of a particular inspiration, a particular divine inspiration in a particular time, in a particular place for a particular audience. And that's how we should think of scripture. All right. Well, our thanks to Reza Aslan for joining us this evening. We would also like, yes. Also, like to thank our audience uh, here and our audience on, on the air. And we would like to remind our audiences who are here that copies of his book, God, A Human History, are available for purchase. And he'll be happy to sign copies in just a few minutes. I'm Stephen Saum, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you, Thanks, Steve. That was great. Lots of fun as always. <laughs>